Um, so, Michael Josem. It is Josem, isn't it? Is that how we pronounce it? Yep, that's it. Thanks for coming to speak to me. Thank you for having me, Lee. Good yeah, to be here. The, uh, it's the weirdest um, conversation I think I've ever had with somebody. Because if you could just bring that microphone kind of like a fist towards your fa- from your face, we'll be pretty good there. Because uh, we spoke to each other a little bit on Twitter. Yep. Yeah, things. And uh, I think you listen to the podcast. We've never actually met each other. Good to meet you, Lee. Yeah, good <laughs> to meet you as well. Here, cheers. Cheers. But, um, for those of you at home, we've just cheersed our cans of Bud Light. <laughs> yeah, it would have been better with the bottles, wouldn't it? Now thinking about it. It's a, I guess it's an audio podcast rather yeah. than a video one. So you're the first Australian I've ever had in the podcast. You're the first person with an IMDb that I've ever had in the podcast. Oh. Because I, did, I didn't expect to find IMDb on you. The uh, I wish I'd known that before because I'd have watched a documentary in the 60 Minutes that you were a part of. Indeed, that was a few years. That was, that was a long time ago now. So. Uh, the, the internet never lets the past it's, escape. It's true. No, it was a good, it was a good uh, documentary. This documentary was, it was about uh, some cheating that took place in online poker, and that's mm-hmm. something I, I guess I played a, a role in helping to uncover and prove was happening. Yeah. Um, and it sort of went viral on the internet before virality was really a thing. Right. And then that, uh, I guess, uh, Brought me to the attention of the then owners, operators of PokerStars, who contacted me. That um, I guess put me on the path now to living here in the Isle of Man. Yeah, how did how did you get involved in the like the uh, fraud thing for the online poker? Yeah, so exactly through that. So that my so I had some friends who were playing some very high stakes games of poker. Mm-hmm. Um, this is back in the two thousand and six, two thousand two thousand seven. It would have been. Yeah, uh, and they were. They were playing games. So the buy-in was ten thousand dollars. So so ultra high high stakes wow. games. And uh, they suspected that there was some misbehaviour taking place. They thought that there was an account, a player in the games, who was cheating by being able to see the whole cards and the cards that you get dealt at the start of each so hand. So was he using some sort of on like hack? So he. So I'll come to that in a second. But yes. but basically, he, he, the site, the operator, said, "Oh look, this player was just getting really, really lucky," and so being. Someone who's familiar with statistics, never a professional mathematician, but someone who's interested in that world. Mm-hmm. I did the the analysis to figure out just how lucky that player was, um, and I found that they were winning at about fifteen standard deviations above the mean, which is about the same probability as winning a one in a million lottery on Monday night, on Tuesday night, on Wednesday <laughs> night, on Thursday <laughs> night, on Friday night, and on Saturday night. And it's not impossible. No. <laughs> but realistically, it, you, if you see that, that statistic, that, that analysis really proved there was misbehaviour. And then subsequently, some other technical data came out. It got leaked from um, from various operators mm-hmm. um, that, that indicated and strongly suggested that the operator, that the, the, the cheating account was being operated, um, owned and operated by or from the home computer of, or the home internet service of the same person who was the owner and manager of that online poker site. Oh, wow. And so that was um, that, that proof came public. Uh, subsequently, it became um, both a, a documentary by a, an independent filmmaker. It got covered on 60 Minutes in the US and the New York Times and so on and was broadly the inspiration of a, um, of a movie starring Justin Timberlake, I want to say Ben Affleck, mm-hmm. um, called Runner Runner, which was uh, released in the mid-2010s mm-hmm. and is a generally awful movie, except, <laughs> except for the fact that uh, it's somewhat inspired by by me. So, so it's, um, that was a bit of fun. That's crazy. Yeah. Were, were you, uh, did you give any input on the film? 
So they contacted me, and by that time I was working at PokerStars, um, and PokerStars asked that I not play any role in that. And, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously I had a professional obligation to them at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I missed out on that, but uh, it was uh, it was all good fun. That's cool. No, like it, it was just a... When I was reading up on some of the stuff you've done, like a member of the Australian House of Representatives, is that like the um, Australian Senate? That that would be the so the Australian House of Representatives is the equivalent of the Australian of the UK's House of Commons. Yeah, and so just to be clear, I was not a member of the the House of Representatives. I worked for various oh, politicians right. okay. at that time. Yeah. So that was that was my first jobs out of uni, working in various little country towns. Is that what got you interested in politics? Well, I guess it was after I was interested in politics, but yeah. uh, I was working in these little country towns. And then in the spare evening, um, you know, it's my spare time in the evening, I would play some online poker. And that's how I, I guess, then went on this path here of uh, of discovering this cheating taking place. Yeah. And that I'd amassed these databases of, of, of play and was able to use that to do the analysis. And so, you know, I was living in a little town called Wangaratta, uh, which is about three and a half hours drive north of Melbourne. In mm. the, that's real... That's the outback. That's the centre of bushfire territory every year. Um, oh. A little town, about twenty thousand people or something these days. Was that uh, affected by the fires this year? Not directly yet, uh, mm. but certainly there will be fires in that region. Yeah, and, and especially as we get into January, February, March. Um, you know, I don't, I, I have not seen any specifics there, but there are bushfires there every year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Australia is certainly the the continent that's always been melted by fire, and it's mm-hmm. you know for millions of years now so i thought it was crazy when you're saying about people setting them on on purpose i i i, I it never occurred to me that that would be a thing that happened yeah so so of the of the fires where they they have knowledge of how they were set um something in the order of 94 percent a human started some of them deliberately by some of the worst people in the world yeah and you know, if you were, and you know, some of these people, I guess, have some sort of mental disorder, and that they have some sort of addiction mm-hmm. to setting fire into that. Some of them are just low-end, awful human beings. Yeah, and and so that's, I guess, one one set. Then there's another set of fires that are set accidentally. So that is people who, um, you know, for example, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a helicopter was taking off. Um, and they had some landing lights so to to you know to so that the the pilot could see where the ground was. Yeah. And one of those lights fell over and 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 started a fire. Wow. Uh, it, was, so, it, was a, it was a defense force helicopter there. Is this essentially just a country of kindling then at that Basically, point? Basically, yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and it's it's dangerous, right? People die every year. And you know, just just the other day, there were these three Americans who died. You know, giving their service. They've flown halfway across the world. Mm-hmm. To to fight fires to save lives, and they've ended up giving theirs, and that's a remarkable sacrifice, and it's you know it's tragic to see that happen. Yeah, uh, and then I guess in the the third set of of human started fires are, you know, basically morons doing dumb things such as failing to properly extinguish a campfire yeah, or, yeah. or throwing a cigarette butt out the out the window, which is certainly not deliberately not set. malicious but idiotic. Yeah, best just an A grade moron. Yeah. yeah. Was there anything around where you were? Because you you went back to Australia for Christmas. Yeah, so my my parents have this rule that uh, every odd numbered year, all the kids and now the grandkids have to come home wherever they are in the world. <laughs> they uh, have to come. It's home. like a bat signal. <laughs> in, exactly right. And so I'm an obedient little boy. And so it was a, it was a good fun um, over Christmas and New Year. And so I stayed in you know around Melbourne mm-hmm. and, and, the, and elsewhere. Uh, and and where these fires at that time were in southeastern Victoria. It's a big chunk of area, but there's it's pretty remote. Yeah, land. and so in, you know, it was an area somewhat equivalent to Kent, East Sussex, West Sussex, all the way west to Hampshire, 
with a population of about 20,000 people. Right. So the you know in, in if you think of southeast England there's something there are 20 or 30 million people yeah, in, yeah, that, yeah. In, that, in that equivalent space there there's 30 or 40 or 50,000 people. Uh, it always amazes me how big Australia is. You know it's when you when you look at it on the, on the map compared to actually how big it is. Yeah and and it's remarkable because it's about the same size as Europe west of Russia. Yeah. But with a population slightly larger than Romania. Mhm. Yet the largest two cities in Australia, Melbourne and Sydney, are bigger than any cities in the European Union. Crazy. Is it, is it the largest la- landmass for the lowest population? Apart from Antarctica, yeah. of course. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, unreservedly. And, and so in that sense, it's, it's so incredibly remotely and sparsely populated on one hand, but it's incredibly urban, urbanised. Yeah, you know, yeah. Because you've got, you know, there's no, there's no cities in all of the EU that are as big as Melbourne, which is the second biggest city in you know, let alone Sydney, yeah. which is a little bit bigger these days. That's cool. Um, the, uh, the, the the satellite picture that was part of, I thought that was interesting because I, I saw this crazy satellite picture and it turns out somebody just doctored it and it was supposed to be clouds. They did recolored the clouds. Yeah, I guess so that's the thing like about the, the internet these days fire. is that yeah. people can lie. And, and you know, some terrible devastation that was mm. wreaked. Is that the right word? Reaped upon the upon the yeah, upon the yeah, country. You can have it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's sad. And it's um, you know, I guess it's these those you know those horrific bushfires in two thousand and nine that I remember mm-hmm. um, just before I left. And uh, and you know, back in nineteen eighty three, there were horrific fires. Nineteen sixty nine, and you know, the worst of all were these uh, fires in nineteen thirty nine, uh, which um, the story that the myth that we heard growing up in in Melbourne. Was that they were so hot? It was southwest of Melbourne. Um, was, there's a forest that comes right up to the sea there, near the Great Ocean Road, in fact. And the, the myth that we were told—I don't know if it's true. I hope it is. Um, was that the, it became so hot that some of the the sand on the beach started to crystallise, um, the sand becoming glass. Wow! And, and, you know the heat of of those sort of, you know, that the, you know nature is powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. The what you were saying then about uh, the internet and people have the ability to lie—it's—it's mm-hmm. uh, it's this thing about clicks, isn't it? Clicks and likes that seem to be the like the new the new currency for people to like gather worth from. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a direct financial reward for getting attention. Yeah, but there's relatively little financial reward for telling the truth. Yeah, and I think that that's afflicted the internet a whole bunch of our community discourse mm-hmm. as, 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 a, as a society um, and you know to a certain extent some degree of our media especially in the US or the UK or elsewhere where you have um, so much motivation to to play up to your audience's fears rather than to tell the truth and so you know 20 30 40 50 years ago you had a world where media outlets at least aspired to tell the truth mm. um, and you know there's certainly still a, a bit of that here um, you know, in different parts of the world, uh, but it's a lot weaker in some of those global media outlets. Where I think you'll find good journalists pretty much everywhere, won't you? But there's um, may- maybe the the overarching narrative of those particular companies is what stifles it. You know, it's your um, if you're going to write for the Guardian, you're going to have a pretty solid view of things of what they're going to accept, and the same if you do the Mail. So you've all if you've if you've got a lens before you start writing, then it's going to taint everything, isn't it? 
It is. And, you know, it's sort of sad that now that I see, you know, whatever headline, whether it be, um, you know, left-wing headline or right-wing headline or some other headline, you know, my gut reaction is, I wonder if that's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's it, that's not what media should be. Media should be there to inform you, or at least, even if it's going to misinform you, at least let it be honestly doing so. You know, let, let it be a mistake that's misinformed you, not someone going out of their way to do it. I love your optimism, but I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it should be about truth. And, you know, so many of our, our institutions in society that used to be about seeking truth, mm-hmm. you know, seem to have been corrupted in a certain extent. Uh, what do you think the reasons for that are? It's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that that there's a there's a book that I've been meaning to read recently, published by Yuval, Yuval Levin. You know, I might, I might have the, the pronunciational name mm. slightly incorrect, but let's go with that for the time being. And uh, you know, talk. And he, he, you know, I've heard him uh, do a podcast, uh, you know, on on a on another, you know, outlet, talking about his book and making the point that that in the past institutions existed to guide the people who served in them, and so that is, if you served in a you know, in a political party or in a newspaper or in a sporting club or a military division, the purpose of that institution was to to help you to become a better person. Mm. Whereas so many people these days see, well, so many people these days are using institutions as a platform to in the other way. And that is that you know, and I guess the most performative in, in, example of that is Donald Trump as president of the USA. Yeah, in yeah. That, uh, you know, once upon a time, people felt, past presidents felt constrained by the institution. Um, they saw themselves as the, you know, servants to that institution. Whereas, I think that his view of the presidency and that institution is as as a servant to him. I mean, I think there's you can. You can pick Trump being elected. I don't know what what you think of uh, Donald Trump as a president. Um, I don't know. On some things he does good things, some things he does bad things. So, yeah. so I think that passing a unitary judgment on humans in general is a bad idea mm. because so many humans are complicated. Yeah, but I think Dan, that's the problem you have, especially with someone like him, is it's become so polarizing. You know, it's it's orange man good or orange man bad, and it, it's not really the case. But the you can take that moment. I think you can kind of unravel things to where we are now from that. It's, it seems to have been, it was that figure that came in that's had this sort of rise of the authoritarian left is what I look at. Because all of a sudden, so these people had a, um, a Darth Vader to <laughs> wave signs against. Well, I don't know about that. In that, in that, you know, you can still find on the internet the, you know, the George Bush's Hitler logos or, or yeah, icons and yeah, so on. Yeah. And that, you know, oh, I think and that, that's George H.W. Bush the father, and then you find the Ronald Reagan is evil, and that you know Nixon Time is evil. Time magazine and, wasn't it? Didn't Time magazine have a picture of George Bush on the on the cover of uh, cover it as the devil? And I think the head the the headline was "This man is dangerous." I look. Maybe I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I think and, so. Uh, and I, and I guess it, that's so much hysteria about some of these things. And so, you know, Donald Trump does a lot of stuff I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then again, you know, he, the other day he, you know, was able to, you know, take action against one of the world's leaders, te- leading terrorists in, in Iran. Yeah. Or in, in, in Iraq, rather, but, you know, the Iranian guy, Soleimani. And, 
you know, that's 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 good. <laughs> was that, that was when a load of people online accidentally mistook a rant for Disneyland, I think. Oh, well, <laughs> don't know about that, but but you know, and, and you know, you wouldn't want to celebrate any another human's death, but no, you know, it certainly would not did not shed a tear on that on that occasion. Mm. Um. How would, how do you find the whole uh, identity politics thing we're going through at the minute? It's sort of sad, mm. and I think it's going to lead people down to a very um, negative path. Yeah, uh, in that, in that, growing up. Do you think it's a generational blip that's happening, or is this going to become the new norm? I think it'll be less than a generational blip because fundamentally, this is a repudiation of the last 300 years of mm-hmm. humanity's progress. Um, and if you think of the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, especially those Scottish thinkers of Adam Smith and, and others, who, who you know, John Locke and others, who really set, began humanity on a path to treating people as individuals, mm-hmm. to that, those, those sentiments that arose out of that Scottish Enlightenment of, of, of respect for human rights, around freedom of speech, freedom of association and so on, have essentially set humanity on a path to treating people on the basis of who they were um, and who they are in, in terms of their, their character, in terms of their ideas, in terms of their actions, rather than who they are as defined by the demographics. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I have a very simple view. You should judge people by the content of the character, not by the colour yeah. of their skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is a very illiberal idea, this idea of identity politics, because it's, a, it's, it's I think it's fundamentally wrong, not just morally wrong to judge people by the colour of their skin or the demographics of, you know, whether they're, you know, straight, gay, transgender, heterosexual, you know, red, white, black, blue, whatever colour they are, whatever gender they are, whatever identity they are. I think I have a very strong belief that everyone's dignity as a human human is equally worth, valuable. Yeah, it's and it it puts groups just into small boxes. Yeah. And as soon as you start putting people into boxes, then a problem that this box has with this box becomes a problem that this box is going to have. And before you've got it, nobody can agree on anything unless you happen to be I'm white so I agree with the white people or I'm black so I agree with the black people. Yeah, and so I think that's right. I think that's it's both morally wrong on that level, mm-hmm. um, but also it's factually wrong in that there are some white people who are very fortunate and privileged, and there are some white people who are very unfortunate and have a lot of disadvantage in life. There are some black people who are very fortunate and privileged, and there are a lot of black people who are very disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And the idea of using skin colour or yeah. race or gender or identity or whatever other demographics as a proxy for privilege or unprivileged, I don't know what the, op- the opposite word of privilege is, but whatever that word is, this privilege, anti-privilege, I don't know, but what a disadvantage maybe. Yeah. So so the idea of using someone's demography as a proxy for their privilege in life is, is it's a bullshit idea, mm-hmm. you know, because it's both morally wrong and it's factually wrong. Um, I like Douglas Murray's thing about that, whereas if, if you've got... Um, if you say white privilege, at what point does the unemployed white man level out with like the Indian millionaire? Hey, at what at what point does does privilege does privilege sort of balance it out so there's at least some common ground there? Yeah, it's, then you've got to get into some sort of ranking system, yeah. different levels of disadvantage, and then you have complicated people like me. And so, you know, if you think of my demography, you know, I was born 
you know, in a nice suburban household in, 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 in Melbourne, in Australia, which is, you know, I guess it's a Western, obviously it's a Western nation. Um, but then I'm over here, I'm a migrant, but, you know, my grandparents were, were literally the victims of a white supremacy movement. Um, and then on the other side, you know, of my you know, grandparents were German. And so in that sense, you know, I have no idea how you even, how you could even rank yeah, so yeah, compare yeah. such things, let alone, you know, whatever other. Well, you, ju- you, ju- you just get blanketed with white at that point, I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> let, let me give you a hot tip that my grandfather who and my grandmother, who was the victims of, you know, well, the most evil white supremacy movement that yeah. this earth has, this planet has ever seen, mm-hmm. the idea that their grandchild now know, is yeah, white, it's, it's, it's bonkers, right? Yeah. And, and so that, that, again, you know, makes me think this idea where you have to measure people by you know, like your ex, you know, your twenty-seven percent, you know, demographic A, and your thirty-two percent demographic B. Um, I think that whole idea is nonsense, and so you should just judge people as humans, judge people as individuals. I always um, think with situations like this, you've got these things that are just injected, sort of, into the vernacular. Just there, all of a sudden, you know, it's it sort of it explodes, and there's buzzwords, and there's people. Um, I always wonder how how these things sort of simmer away and then just just come alive and i can't i can't work out whether it's not like a they are doing this type of situation but is there a a, cer- a a certain group of people that look for things to put in the media and to fill up the time with and go right well we can we can escalate this and we can make this the new ticket to fill a year's worth of news. Like I thought, I thought that about um, Extinction Rebellion when that sort of happened. That just seemed to explode out of nowhere. Your um, your man, I can't remember who was who's the guy that he was one of the spokesmen of it. God, I can't remember the guy's name now. But all of a sudden, he was on like um, Question Time and stuff like that. And you just, how is this? Being given so much gravity so quickly without sort of checking the people that are involved in it. So I guess with things like Extinction Rebellion, they fundamentally did things that were newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a little bit different from this like, world of identity politics because I think that what's been happening over the last 10 or 20 or 30 years has been a a, um, a group of people in universities who have been theorising and talking within those communities, educating a next generation. And so I think that... You know, for me, I was born at the beginning of the 1980s. I went to university back in Australia at the beginning of 2000s. You know, in 2000, if you said to someone you're a Marxist or a socialist, they'd look at you, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah, you yeah. Know, did yeah. you miss the 20th century? You know, that, that Marxism killed something in the order of 100 million people. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the idea that anyone could stand up could have st- stood up in that world. It's a great thing about socialism, though, isn't it? The next person's always got it right. The next yeah. one's always got it figured out. And it's and and I guess those people, you know, in, in that in that in that environment, they had some sort of disaffection with Western society, and so I guess they wanted to pull up the next cudgel that they could find. And then obviously, Marxism was discredited, and anyone who advocated for Marxism, you know, should be, you know, I don't I don't know what the right word is here, but put out to pasture and mm-hmm. you know maybe put in some you know retirement home for people who have <laughs> terrible ideas but there's no accountability for that right and no. so you have a you have a world where people are employed for life with this idea of tenure and so they've got to come up with some other new made up cudgel and so I think that's where this world of identity politics come from and then when you when you try and in, impose that upon the real world people say well, this is nonsense 
Um, the idea that that because your demographics make you, you know, it's just a, such a terrible proxy for for reality. In that there are you know some you know wonderfully fortunate uh, white people, some wonderfully unfortunate white people, or terribly unfortunate white people mm-hmm. rather. Um, and and that applies to every demographic. And you know, I think that comes back to you know that principle that I think is really important that we were talking about before is that every human should just be treated with equal dignity. Yeah. Um, are, are you are you religious at all? That's a good question. My my father was Jewish or is Jewish. Mm-hmm. My mum is Lutheran. I went to a Church of England school and and sort of ended up, I guess, nominally atheist. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, I have a great deal of humility in the sense of. You know, Michael Joseph's been on this planet for 38 years and, you know, I don't, don't think I'm particularly smart or anything. And so in that sense, I have a great degree of reverence for those religions of, you know, Judaism that's been around for, what, 6,000 years. Mm. You've got Christianity for, you know, two and a bit thousand years. You've got, you know, Islam. It's about 1,400 years old. You know, these ideas have stood the test of time. And so in that sense, I have a great deal of, although I don't, I've not yet heard that calling for God in that Christian sense. Yeah. I have a deep degree of respect for a lot of the ideas. And so Christianity was really the first organization or first idea that everyone is made in God's image. Yeah. So that is a core tenet of Christianity. And that and so I guess in that sense I have an affection for that idea that everyone, every human, should be treated equally. And while humans have never quite lived up to that, and you know, I'm sure there's still a lot of work to be done. I think we're so far headed in the right direction. Um, well, that's kind of what I think with this is. I'm not um, religious in that sense, I'm, but again, I'm not. I'm not arrogant enough to think that I've got everything and all figured out. Um, I'm also quite open to the idea that yeah, people are maybe separate from the animals in some way. Joe, you know, the maybe there's something different about us. Yeah, but, so so just to be clear, cannibalism yeah. is awful. Don't yeah. don't don't eat humans. Yeah. <laughs> but eating a cow, I think that is morally different. Yeah. Because I think that there is there is a degree of personness, humanity. Yeah. That makes things different. So it's it's objectively different to you know, and I guess that one of these debates around, you know, that we've seen in the Isle of Man but also elsewhere in recent years, this idea about abortion comes down to a question of when someone is entitled to human rights yeah it's and it's it's a scary uh conversation to have with people because it's and it's one of those boxed off conversations now where if you have the wrong opinion you're not you're, you haven't just got the wrong opinion you're a bad person i think that's what you don't want conversations like that you know it's the pro-life movement for instance is always hammered with the um like fundamentalist christian badge instantly not just the fact that maybe some people are scared that we're killing little people yeah and so i guess there's and i think on a lot of these issues there is scope for reasonable people to have reasonable disagreements i don't think i don't know if where that bright line is so but it's got to be like clearly killing people is bad yeah clearly Using contraception, well, to me anyway, is acceptable. Yeah. So somewhere in the middle, it becomes. There has to be a point of personal responsibility as yeah. well. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how to how to define that that limit, and it's it's difficult. Hmm. Um, but so sorry, I've sidetracked myself there. But as far as the um, right religion thing goes, I wonder whether lots of the problems that we're seeing in society now with 
um, identity politics and like a rise of sort of Marxism and socialism is because we've... Well, I don't think there's a rise of Marxism. Like, no, not like... a sorry, it's probably the wrong word. I mean, the uh, the the trendiness of it with young with younger people. Well, I don't. That, well, so I th I think there is a soup there is a superficial, dis you know concern, or you know unhappiness with some parts of our modern society. Yeah, but Marxism was wrong. It was mm -hmm. literally disproved by the twentieth century. But even some of some of the, like you know we can have a conversation about about some of his writings. But his idea that value is created as a function of the value of labor time yeah is just wrong yeah um, and you know we see that in that in that you know look at the most valuable companies today whether it be you know amazon or or um you know facebook or apple or whatever it's not that someone has spent time laboring to create a product but rather in that you know that that so much of that value is in the, in well, the intellectual property ideas in the ideas yes yeah. exactly the ideas mm -hmm. And so, you know, two hundred years ago, Karl Marx spoke to a world where, where, where the economy was focused on things rather than services. Mm -hmm. And so, in that sense, that idea of valuing things by the amount of time it made to took to make it was plausible, but it's just obviously wrong now. And and so, in that sense, you know, Marxism is the is the idea that if you are a, disagree with the party, you should be shot. <laughs> but do you not think there's a a there's an attraction towards um, well, socialism then between with sort of a young student sort of demographic now. So I think I think there are some people who like socialism, but then you've got to talk about well, what does it actually mean. Mm -hmm. And so, so at the same time that they seem to be saying, you know, I think there's an idea that hey, we should have more government regulation, more government control of things, but actually, government trust in government has never been lower. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, you know, to take to use the Isle of Man example, you know, the Isle Man, there's a there's a promenade here goes for two and a half kilometres, and it's going to take three or four or how many years to redevelop thing. I just drove along it just now. It's yeah. like it's like it's dri like driving through a not a minefield, but it's like navigating. It's, it's like <laughs> navigating through a you know a Mario Kart track. It's, it's bananas, and it, it, they, and so if and so as a result, people naturally have a scepticism of of government, but they say, oh, let's regulate this, let's control, let's give more power to politicians. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, in that sense, it's you know, I, I, th I think that when I think it all sounds nice, but when you talk about it in the nuts and bolts of what socialism actually means, mm -hmm. um, I think it becomes much less popular. Yeah, um, I think that's the thing. I don't think people are finding it popular because it makes sense. I think people are find it, finding it popular because it's it's a way to galvanize people around something. And that's, that's what I was going to say was, we, as people have fell away from religion, I think there's. It's almost been like taking the underpinnings out of the West to where, and it's just it's just getting filled now with things, whether it be um, like let's let let let's all pretend Jeremy Corbyn is the answer to everything. Let's pretend the world's flat. Let's pretend that aliens are going to visit us tomorrow. It seems all these ideas are getting packed in to fill that void. That I think religion, even if it, even if you weren't. Um, like devoutly religious, it was always over the shoulder of people. Even if you didn't really believe it, it was just well, maybe. I think it's difficult to make the argument that socialism is very popular 
what, three months after the UK put forward, the UK Labour Party put forward a very socialist policy oh, platform. Uh, no, absolutely. Oh. But I think there was, if you counted the um, uh, votes and people voting, I reckon it would be a really young vote that had the Labour Party. Yeah, so look, I'm sure there are some people who who, who like the idea of socialism, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think it's any bigger than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And Do you I think th- it's just inflated because of social media and because of the the fact we've got instant communication with everything and one one person with one good tweet can make a stir all of a sudden? So, well, I, I guess there are some people who are high profile support socialism, but you know, you know, I, I guess that in 2020 you can find all sorts of groups of nutty people with all sorts of nutty mm-hmm. ideas um, getting together, and I think that that's one of the, I guess, surprising examples or uses of the internet. In that, 50 years ago, if you were into collecting used beer bottles, it would be very hard to find a network of people who shared that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. thing. And so, whereas in 2020. It's much easier to find that. And so hence you've got a, a wonderful flourishing of these different ideas and different groups of people who are able to connect with others. And so whereas, you know, 50 years ago people would have said, hey, look, you really, you know, if you had the technology 50 years ago, hey, do you want the government to, to control every aspect of your life? You know, people say, well, no, I don't. Like that's a, that's a creepy idea. And so whereas I guess in 2020 you can find a bunch of people who want to, you know, empower the government to control more and more parts of your life and it's sad but it's you know it's, it's freedom and so i think the solution to that is more publicity more discussion of the these creepy ideas um how far do you think that's gonna go before people say enough's enough uh, do, do you think there's a because if you're um especially i tell you you specialize sort of in um what online technologies and stuff like that what what, what do you mean I don't um the I, I, I don't know why I mean myself, myself to be honest. Um, do you think that there's going to be a point where people turn around and say right, enough surveillance is enough? I hope so. Yeah, and I think there's already a bit of pushing back against it in San Francisco where they've banned facial recognition, mm. uh, and uh, I'm hopeful that there are more more limits in that. In that, you know, just to be clear, I'm not some you know extremist libertarian anarchist no no uh, and so i think there is a very proper role for government to to limit the excesses of corporations run amok and i think this one this is one of those areas where there is a very proper role for government to 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 limit the power of individuals to be surveilled without their consent um and i think it's really important that, that the government does play an active role in that sort of thing Fortunately, in the in the US, they they seem to have a little bit taken a little bit of a harder line on that. But uh, in the in the UK, there's a huge number of cameras, mm-hmm. cost something in the order of fifty thousand pounds or something for every crime detected, which is by the cameras. Wow! Which and and at that, at that sort of level, it just isn't economical. It's, no, you know, you'd be better off to having you know one and a half police on the street for that. Is it the most camera city in the world, London? I assume so, unless so. unless there's some sort of extreme yeah, outlier yeah, yeah. in China somewhere. Yeah, maybe maybe North Korea could will have a a stake in one of them. Maybe I don't know. But um, no, I find it odd. It's uh, I'm, well, we we all do it. Uh, we like, we'll go and buy a phone. We know it's got a microphone on it. You get reams and reams of writing that you just click okay for. Um, 
but I'm just I I can't I can't see where the stopping point's going to be for people Un- until until we've got um, until we don't want the conveniences we seem to be able to, we seem seem to give an awful lot up for just a, a convenience. Yeah, and so I guess there's a lot of value in that. In that, mm-hmm. you know, being able to look on your phone to figure out where you are and where you want to go, the way that it all integrates is great. Yeah, it's useful. If, and I think one of the key issues that changes surveillance is that is the amalgamation into giant databases, in the sense of if you have a video on your front door. That allow, like, if you have a one of these new, what do you call it, a ring video mm. cameras on your door, right, which allows you to view anyone who comes to your front door. That in itself, if you're, if you as a homeowner or, or renter or whatever it is, as the person who, the tenant who lives in that house, if you have access to that, then that seems fine and dandy and acceptable. However, if you were then to create a database of all and put a camera on the front of everyone's house, and put that into a way that you were able to that some sort of centralised authority was able to view all those cameras and see who was entering and leaving every house in the community. Well, that would be super creepy. Yeah. And the similar analogy would be that that um, that uh, 40 years ago, if you committed a crime and you were reported in the newspaper, well, it's unfortunate for you as a, as a, that that's published in the newspaper. You know, just to be clear, you should be held accountable for your crime. Yeah, but, of course. But if, if, you know, if you do something wrong, then that's that's terrible. But or that, that's that's wrong, but it's... You know, the fact that it's reported in the newspaper, that's, that's I guess, reasonable. 40 years later, in, in you know, 2020, now that you can find all this data, data and it's all on the internet forever, so the fact that you can find out there was a documentary about me 12 years ago uh, about cheating in online yeah, poker yeah. Is, is, on one hand, it's, 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 you know, it's concerning. I don't know what the answer is there. Um, but there is, I think, something transformative about between the one individual record and a whole database mm. of records. Does um, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I've, there was an interesting thing I saw um, today. It was um, when Joe Rogan inter- interviewed Andrew Doyle, is it? Is it Doyle? Andrew Doyle? Uh, he's a comedian. Have you seen the uh, Twitter account, Tatiana McGrath? Yes. Yeah, he is behind her. Essentially, he's, he he operates that uh, that character. Um but he was saying about a um, a guy that they came across where he'd applied for a job and he'd been knocked back on the job, the job he'd gone for because of his activity online, which wasn't outrageous. But the, the, they'd used software to find all the tweets he'd liked and things like that. And the, it they, they sent him... Like thirty thousand pages of all the tweets he'd liked, almost for him to say, like, look, just maybe, maybe you need to think about your actions, type of situation. And it was just every every time he'd like to tweet, which had the word "fuck" in it. Every time there was there was another one. Um, he tweeted, "I just saw a uh, a girl running across the supermarket sh- uh, shop, which had took the a bottle of vodka out of her mum's trolley." And he tweeted that he'd seen this, and it it was flagged as in um, inappropriate child alcohol, and this algorithm had worked out what he'd been liking. It sounds sounds to me like the algorithm is a bit dumb, um, but 
you know, I guess on one hand, people should be held accountable for the things they do, but but I think that sounds like something deeply flawed with the organisation. Yeah. If if you're if you're as an organisation are going to dismiss people who like tweets on the internet, well, everyone's they're, they're, fucked in that well, case. Well, then your organisation is going yeah. to have a, have a significant problem, and and they're going to lose a whole bunch of talent. And if you're that organisation, then I think you're going to have trouble staying in business. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yeah, that sounds sounds shitty. Sounds crappy. Um, can I swear on here? Yeah, of course <laughs> you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds shitty, and yeah. uh, and in that sense, you know, unfortunate. Um, and yeah. It just seems like we're allowing ourselves to be surveilled all the time, and where we're kind of giving it, we're, we're we're doing our own surveillance and then passing the information over at the end of the month. Yeah, there's a you know we live in the world of corporate, you know, corporate surveillance. Yeah, um, I you'd have thought with the Snowden thing that maybe that might have shook people more than it did, especially looking you know when you look back at it now because when it happened it was. It was a massive thing that then just sort of fizzled away and disappeared. Um, and even even now, it's not like looking back in sort of thirty or forty years' time. But now you think, God, why, why weren't people more concerned about this? I think people were concerned. So I think it was significant after the after the the misbehaviour by the U.S. government came yeah. to came to came to light. I think there was a significant reduction Do you in not their think powers. It was forgotten quickly, though. Well, the, I think that you'll find that the parliaments. You know, especially in Australia, it became you know they railed back in the powers. I, I understand in the UK there was a significant reduction yeah. in the powers. I believe in the US there was a significant reduction in the powers, um, to the point where some of those databases are now being have been shut down. Mm. And so, prison, so there, I think pr- there was a significant action taken because of that. But do you not think people people in general didn't worry as much as they should have done that? Well, people in general have a lot of more important things. They've got Maybe. their kids going to school in the morning. Yeah. They've got their their work. To go tomorrow, and and I think that it's rational for the for many most people to be ignorant of, of these issues because, you know, the things that matter to most people their family, their jobs, their mm-hmm. friends, their careers, their vocation, their faith, their community, and 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 I think that the people who do care and were entrusted to care significantly ramp, reduced some of the powers, um, and so for someone like me who believes strongly in you know someone's right to privacy. Um, I think that you know it was important to me, and by the sounds of things, it was important to you. Yeah, yeah, but, I, it, you know, it, it's yeah. something now. Maybe it's more because the the whole um, reason I ended up starting to do stuff like this was because I had a son, and all, all of a sudden I thought, I, the the world seems scary. I don't. Do you have children? No, I don't. The, the world seems so much scarier when you've got a child. All of a sudden, like overnight, it's fucking weird. All of a sudden, tables are weapons. The corners of tables are weapons and the internet's terrifying. And I thought, fuck, well, if if the world's going to fall apart, at least that um, I can turn around at one point and say, oh, well, at least I was talking about it to people. <laughs> but um, the, uh, the idea that he's going to grow up in this sort of constantly surveilled dystopian nightmare is... Is a real worry to me. I, yeah. I think it's because I think it's a it's a genuine possibility. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, you know, I I agree very much that 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 we, there needs to be limits to how these databases are amassed. Mm-hmm. In that, it's obviously reasonable to see who comes into your house. Yeah, but if you produce a database of who goes into everyone's houses, well, that's creepy and inappropriate. 
How do you feel about the um, 5G and the Huawei being used to implement it in the UK? So I would have very much preferred to not have agencies of the Chinese Communist Party mm-hmm. and wholly owned subsidiaries of the Chinese government to be produced. It's free and ind- a free independent company, isn't it? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's any credible. That that's real. real. But that, I don't. I don't think there's any credible um, argument that Huawei is independent of the Chinese government, and so I would have very much preferred it was not. They were not allowed to operate infrastructure in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I still, and I was very disappointed the Isle of Man government allows them to build infrastructure here in the Isle of Man. I was surprised how quickly that was adopted over here. You know, how um, the, when the Huawei buses came over, you know, for the five G yeah. demonstrations and things, that that it shocked me. Just the, uh, I mean, and I'm by no way no enough about 5g or what the uh, what huawei's implementation would have as, as an effect on us but i do know that it, it just seemed sort of oh yeah well they're going to do it be fine yeah so i think one of the isle of man's greatest advantages is its strength and security and independence mm-hmm. in a world of upheaval and especially in the in the context of 2020 where the chinese government might well be the world's largest purveyor of evil in, and most effective purveyor of evil uh, in, in, in alive today, that, that we should have them not nowhere near those sort of core parts of our infrastructure for the future. You know, the way that they have set up these, these what they call re-education camps, but it's, as far as I can tell, it seemed to just be concentration camps for yeah. Islamic people in the west of China. It's horrific the way that they have sent their, their um, apparatchiks to live in the beds of, of of families in 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 Islamic parts of China is horrific, which is essentially, um, you know, government sponsored rape. Mm. And I think these stories that are coming out of Western China there are horrific. Um, and now we see in the coronavirus that they're trying to manipulate and control and to try and use their power. For evil rather than good, and to have that, those people have an influence over core and important ongoing infrastructure in our little community. I think is is wrong. Do you think that? Um, do you think the coronavirus is a an accidental release of something rather no. than a natural born? I I think it's virus. I th- I think it's I I I don't think there's any credible evidence available today. That suggests suggest it. that it was, you know, some sort of um, man-made mm-hmm. artifact. I suppose if it, the, the fact it's coming from China doesn't help these things. Yeah, and well, that, the, there's that. But there the was, mind you know, goes. The, this last weekend there was a there was a pre preprint publication of a scientific study that suggested that it had connections to HIV. I I, I read that. Hasn't that been kind of debunked? It was debunked, but also the authors withdrew it subsequently. Oh, has and he? And so that's a great example of science. Yeah. The free flow of information working to find the truth. But isn't it that that's the exactly the problem with social media and um, modern communication is that you throw something out and then how many times have we seen like news organizations throw something out that isn't true, then retract it 
and the original story has 15 million views the retraction has 50,000 sure you know the yeah. you know what's that, that old story that uh, you know a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its time to put yeah, its hands yeah. on and of course that's going to happen and the solution to that i think is more more speech and more criticism more open debate in that it's so much better that that's that's and you know i guess that's what happens in a free society is that people come up with the wrong ideas and then they get challenged and debunked mm-hmm and so there are a lot of wrong ideas in the world. And I think the solution for these wrong ideas, whether it be in science, whether it be, you know, this idea of, you know, what should be out, what sort of society we should have, the antidote to bad ideas is good ideas. Yeah. And, you know, if you have a bad idea, you should be disproved, you should be debated, you should be discussed, you should be, you know, if, you, if it's particularly offensive, you should be thrown out of polite society. Well, this is but why not people... criminalised. Um, this is why I think people should be allowed to speak and the... Um, the idea of like people not being able to talk because of hate speech and things like that. Because if but, you yeah. if you say horrible things, people will discount you really quickly, I think. And that's the correct response to such things. But mm-hmm. you know, here in the Isle of Man we now have these rules about it's not just hate speech, it's unwanted conduct on the basis of a protected characteristic. And so it's it, always so nebulous as well. Yeah, you know, what and it's it's all in the eye conduct. of the of the of the victim as it were. And so yeah. if you were to call me a dumb Australian hairy bastard. Mm-hmm. The correct answer, the response to that is for I'm me. I'm not sure like, if that's a request or a statement. <laughs> well, like, if, if you were to say something offensive about my about the fact that I'm, you know, some big Australian hairy bastard. Yeah. The response to that should be one of derision and and social ostracism. Yeah. The response to that should not be for you to be investigated by the police. No, of course it shouldn't. You know, and people say dumb things, people say stupid things. And the and I think that that's one of the key differences between the you know that broader anglosphere of the UK, Australia, US, Canada have always had much stronger protections for freedom of speech. And in those countries there's been while they're around the edges there have been, you know, people with creepy ideas. None have ever come to power in any meaningful way. Mm. And whereas those countries which you know, have banned tightly controlled speech, you have increasingly fringe, you know, neo-Nazi, those sort of, you know, fascist, um, fascist um, ideas get much greater prominence. Yeah. So, you know, the, you know if you were to say, hey, look, about well, you make fascist, martyrs, don't you? What's it, sorry? You make martyrs when you, when you get rid of people. If, if you... It's to, just do the work, right? And say, so, and, yeah, the, Alex like Jones, yeah, he, there's ahead. a good example of this because for years the... Maybe maybe some of the beginning stuff where Alex Jones was there did the documentary, you know, with the he did the Bohemian Grove thing and stuff. Did you ever see that? No, I, I'm not familiar with Alex Jones. I look up. No, heard you of know guy, who but, he is. Yeah, and so like I'm not really the sort of guy to sit at home watching. But, no, but whack he, jobs on he YouTube, turned so. into a complete kook. You know, it's and that's that's where everyone knew he was a kook. But by like cancelling him and stripping social media platforms off and pushing him onto his own service which is where he lives yeah now. i think that's fine but i think it legitimizes people well i don't think you get legitimized by being kicked off twitter or no but by by their uh, well it, it's silencing isn't it there they don't want me to talk but there's there's also on the other hand you know twitter has a right to not carry you know nut jobs do you think there's a uh that it's a good good thing that so i'm I've, I've i don't know where i stand on it um Privately owned companies like Twitter, yeah. Yeah. do you think they have more of a um, social like conscience about them where they, they kind of have to allow people to talk? 
or because it doesn't if you you say katie hopkins for instance who who just got banned from twitter um i don't believe that no matter what vile thing she may tweet or may tweet tomorrow is going to look negative on twitter i think it just looks negative on her so i think that it's wrong the only thing worse than government censoring people is big multinational corporations, corporations censoring people um, and as someone who is very nervous about big corporations with undue influence and undue power mm. on our society, I, th- I think you make a reasonable argument. Would, to, to, to use an analogy from 100 years ago, would the Postal Service have a right to reject mail that it thought was offensive? And I think that in that sense it was just a carrier. Mm. The telephone service has a right to cut people off who doesn't like what they're saying on the telephone. You know, obviously, just to be clear, if you send harassing, offensive, yeah, you know, that, yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of material, that, you know, that threatening, that's obviously mm-hmm. wrong, right? Um, but, you know, if you say something racist down the phone line, does the phone company have an obligation to cut you off? Well, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, of course, it's racist, uh, unless, of course, it's offensive or threatening, mm-hmm. you know, obviously those, those things there. And so then the question comes in in the context of Twitter, is it merely a carrier like a phone service or a mail service of 100 years ago? Or is it a broadcaster in the context of a TV station? In that no one, you know, well, that's no one making a newspaper or a TV station would, would say they're required to carry material that they don't want to carry. I'd say the more they filter, the more they become a publishing platform than they do like an, a, a free company, if you like. Yes, yeah, so I don't know where the, answer, where the line is there. I think these are the sort of things that, you know, in the future will become more of an issue. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there is a question that if you're going to use, if they're going to become more of a publishing company, so the more algorithmic, you know, prioritization it gives to certain views, then maybe they should have greater rights to, you know, downgrade, you know, unwanted speakers, as it were. Mm-hmm. But if they are just a carrier, and so therefore just sharing the tweets that are, in chronological order rather than those that are most of interest to the audience, then maybe there's a greater obligation on them to provide some sort of, they have a greater right to, to reject those that they don't want. Maybe maybe a separate thing where you could have, um, you, know, you know how you can, you can sense uh, uh, tweets, can't you, which have like bad language in them. For instance, I assume that's okay. Yeah, I, I don't know, but maybe a a second filter where, if let, let's just say I say something terrible and outlandish and really racist, and Twitter can give me a mark and go, so there's a so there's another filter where you can say, right, anyone that Twitter's marked, I don't see on my feed. I'd have that as a default thing. If you have Twitter want to go that way. Yeah, or Facebook. And so I think that what you're describing there is the idea for users to have more control over that. In which case, that suggests that Twitter is more of all those social media companies, because it shouldn't just be about Twitter, it should be about Facebook or Instagram or whatever. If those big social media companies are just carriers, then I think that that suggests that there should be some other party or some other you know, plug-in or whatever the word is that provides its sort of filtering and ranking and so mm. on. And There's no real oversight, is there, at the minute for them? What do you mean? For social media companies. Well, they have to comply with the law like everyone else. Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, there's no... Um, 
there's there's no like fair use thing where we we have what what's there's, there's a television one isn't there? Is it Ofcom? So I'm not familiar with English. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's, it's Ofcom in in the UK. Just that sort of an overseer of this sort of thing. Maybe an independent organisation to oversee social media wouldn't be a bad move. Well, t- well, Twitter and they're subject to American law, mm-hmm. and so they have to obey by that. Yeah, but um, maybe there's a like I say, maybe there's more of a moral thing then. You know, it's more of a, it's more of a moral guide that they should have. If it's going to become the electronic open square, that's what I mean. If it's going to be, if, if this is going to be the way people communicate more and more, which it seems to be, people seem to go out less and spend more time online, then to, to ostracize people from that public forum, to me, makes me feel uncomfortable. So the other solution, of course, is that is that you have the person who's producing offensive or material be held mm-hmm. accountable that in the laws of that country. So, yeah. So, you know, if you defame someone on the internet, it doesn't become not defamation because no, no, it's you, on the internet. You can still be sued. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so, I'm sure that's yeah. the case. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ju- it's just a strange thing for me where these people are at the, the whims. I, 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 and in a way, they've built themselves a career on the platforms of other people. But the idea is that these people can essentially lose careers and lose like the, an entire audience because of a push of a button, because they, they don't sit the right side of the fence. So so I, I don't know if I agree with that in that in that and it's probably more useful to talk about specifics here. Yeah. You know, so so Katie Hopkins who I'm not particularly familiar with, but you know, I'm broadly aware of uh, yeah, so so I, so I accept that there are yeah, people yeah. who have been banned from Twitter, and and so I guess if that's the case, then well, it's up to Twitter to decide. Mm. So you know, if, and if you're banned from from you know your local you know if the local newspaper doesn't want to cover your your letters to the editor or your news or whatever, then that's the really local newspaper, right? It's their prerogative. Yeah, and so and so in that sense, what's what's the alternative? Mm. You know, do you want to have a law that says Twitter must carry you know whatever coot nut job? Material? Yeah, I mean, there was calls for them to ban the President of the United States for a while, wasn't there? Uh, I think that they made a decision. And, you know, I'm very yeah. sceptical of censorship, mm-hmm. but I'm equally sceptical of government-mandated speech. Yeah. So the government should not be forcing Twitter to, you know, carry some crackpot who they don't want to carry. Yeah. Um, back to back to China, because I know you want, you want to bring up the coronavirus when you, when you were talking to what things we could speak about tonight. Um, how do you think the like, like international reaction is to this? Do you do you think we've done uh, the the travel bans came at the right time? Well, some countries have, yeah. and some countries yeah. haven't. And one of the things that I think is truly remarkable is that is that Hong Kong, with such a close dependence on China, has taken much stronger steps than you know a place like the Isle of Man, which has a re- is relatively far away, mm-hmm. um, and it's ex- you know that. That it really should be the other way around. Yeah, yeah. In that, in that, here in the Isle of Man, we have a very low, or relatively low, interaction level of interaction with China. So it means it would make much more sense to to impose a mandatory, you know, quarantine period for anyone coming into China mm-hmm. here in the Isle of Man than you know, than in Hong Kong. Yeah. And so I think it's really disappointing and surprising 
that the Isle of Man government and also the UK British government hasn't enforced yet a mandatory 14-day period for anyone coming from mainland China to here for quarantine. Mm. And I think that, that, the, that, the, that in these sort of extreme sort of circumstances, there is not a normal distribution of outcomes in that with, and if it's not this pandemic, epidemic outbreak, it'll, it'll be, be the next one or the yeah. one after that or the one after that. And at some stage in the future, one of these things is going to kill a bajillion people. Mm-hmm. And and so this is not necessarily a prediction of which one it will be, but we need to be prepared. This needs to be a preparation for when one of these things. And that the distribution of outcomes here is not a normal distribution where you have you know, 1% of the time it kills 1% of the population, 2% of the time, and, and so on. It's it's if you get into that 1% end, it totally just, you know, causes significant, huge, you know, almost destruction. And those sort of extinction-level events um, are not cannot be treated in the same way of, of normal risks. So, for example, what I mean by that is the number of people who will die in a car accident next year, in 2021... It's basically going to be within a few percent of how the number of people who die of a car accident in 2020 and 2019 and so on. Yeah. And those sort of events are, are not correlated on mass. And so that means that, you know, and this this probability, and this is, you know, I guess cuts back to why I worked in online poker, is that I had some understanding of probability and mathematics mm-hmm. and so on there, is that these events are not, that your chance, if you have a car accident tomorrow, that does not necessarily cause... 10 other people to have a car accident the following day. No, you're generally involved with one other person, maybe... At most, or maybe two, two three, or three, yeah. whatever. But it's, the point is it doesn't scale. Yeah. Um, and whereas with this, if you get this disease, it does have a very direct effect, and that can cause 5 or 10 or 20 people mm-hmm. to get the disease a response, and it escalates. And so these things are not normally distributed, and rather um, there is a fat tail um, disaster that happens one in a hundred or one in a thousand and so on. And so this sort of mispricing of risks is exactly the same thing that caused the global financial crisis of, of 2007, 2008. Um, and it caused, you know, the, it has a, you know, the black plague of, you know, 700 years ago was another similar, you know, edge risk that, that got out of control and, you know, affected, you know, communities for hundred years. And so that's why I think that the governments of the world, their first duty must always be to protect the safety and security of their people. And it really scares me that they fail to take, and I'm very nervous that they fail to take adequate precautions. Because even if they are right 99% of the time, 1% of the time it's a horrific disaster and hundreds and thousands of people die. Yeah. And so I have no, I'm certainly making no prediction that 1,000 people or 1,000 no, people no, will no, die no. this time. But at some stage in the future there will be an epidemic and it is really makes me angry and scared. Why do you think it's not taken seriously? Or if not taken, even if it is taken seriously, why do you think that the measures that are proposed don't be enforced? So different countries are enforcing different risks and at different levels of preparedness. So even Hong Kong, which is right on the border there, they've taken the decision that everyone coming from mainland China has to be quarantined for 14 days, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that that will have a huge impact on literally thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. They've taken that very strong step. Whereas here in the Isle of Man, we've not taken that step, despite the fact that it will impact, what, 10, 20, 30 people at most? Yeah. And so that's really scary and wrong. And I think it's because... Was it suggested over here? Did anyone suggest it? So I guess I'm suggesting no it right problem. here, right yeah. now. But so. um, but there are other other people in the world who advocate. No, I meant I meant over here within our government. Was it was it ever? I, I don't know if it's mooted. been proposed here in the Iron Man government. But the, I, I think the the fundamental issue here is that is that the so-called experts 
have a track record of, ba- of being bad at handling these sort of risks. And that and that that sort of normal risk management makes sense in a, with events that are that are normally distributed. And so and so that's why you know that these sort of I don't want to use the phrase extinction level, but these sort of things that can, you know, huge disruptions. World changing level, yeah. levels. Yeah. You know, you know, if, the, if there's a risk, if there's a one percent risk that there's a giant tsunami comes next year, mm-hmm. we need to do everything we probably we possibly can to stop that tsunami. Because yeah. if the tsunami comes and it kills ten thousand people, that's a horrific disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And so we need a, those those sort of you know extinction level events are horrific. They're terrible. Um, and you know, if it's not this one, it'll be one in the future. And so we need to be very careful. Um, and you know, I, I want to be very clear. I'm not predicting that this will be that disaster, but if it's not this, it'll be one down the tra- train. And we need and these sort of risks are not in the same ballpark of traffic accidents or even the normal flu. You know, for the last, you know, from 2012 to 2017, um, in the US, just looking at the, their their incidence of flu, which is you know big population there. You know, somewhere between 24 and 34 million people got the flu every single year. You know, and so in that sense. Even while there's a degree of variation in the in the strength of the flu, it's all still within that same ballpark. Yeah. Whereas these sort of risks, whether it be SARS or whether it be Ebola's or whether it be you know this thing coronavirus, these are risks that are not distributed on the normal distribution of events. So does that that mean that when we we hear reporting of the the uh, we'll hear like coronavirus statistics and then underneath it will always have like a oh yeah but x amount of people died of flu last year there's no real correlation between, between there is the there and because well first of all because because i guess you know the flu is an established and a known risk yeah and we you know the, the flu has been around for a long time yeah, yeah. and people get sick uh, you know 20 or 30 percent of the people get sick of it every year mm-hmm. um, whereas this is not a known risk and so there's no reason to believe that it will will propagate and spread and infect people on the same measures as flu does um, you know and, and these sort of you know different viruses um, can behave differently um, and and I think that 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 folly of, of so-called experts who might be experts in their particular field but are not do you think that brings a level of arrogance with so, uh, so I don't I'm, I'm not I don't I don't think that the that the people who are making these decisions are making them out of arrogance. And I'm yeah. certainly not questioning their mm-hmm. professional capabilities. And I don't know who those individuals are, and I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that as, um, from the point of view of society, that these sort of risks, whether it be... And uh, terrorism is another one, mm-hmm. in that looking at the number of people who died on terrorism last year is has absolutely no relationship to the number of people who die of terrorism next year. No. You know, you let one nuclear bomb off in London, it kills a bajillion yeah, people. Yeah, right? there's, so there's a spike there, all right? Of a sudden. And so there's no correlation from one year to the next. Yeah, um, and so and so for us as society, as a civilization, you know, there are a bunch of different risks that we need to be wary of, and some we need to treat like like car like car collisions, and car deaths, and motor motor deaths. Um, that's one sort of risk, but then you have these sort of risks that are they're very different nature. Um, which we need to be prepared to take strong action against. Um, do you think, if, like what you're saying about China being a cruel country, um, or the Chinese I, regime? Sorry. Yes, just to be clear, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. everything I've Chinese said before was about regime. the Chinese government, not the people, because the, yeah. you know Chinese people like humans any other way. You know, they are they're humans who yearn for to be flourished, like you know. Do you think English it's... people or American people? Or yeah, of course, African people or whatever. 
Um, but do you think um, if the, if an outbreak like this was to happen somewhere else in the world, it would have been quite quicker to to spread because we, we, China for the the authoritarian regime they have. I mean. Could you imagine all of a sudden just closing London down, for instance? And I know the populations are different, but I don't think they are. I think they're very they're similar. I think I think Wuhan is, is a similar or population size to London. Is that eleven million? Is it? Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, it's about yeah. the same as London. Yeah. Um, but because I just I just can't see the uh, like in the West, it, it just shutting and quarantining a whole city down as as quickly as they did. Well, I don't accept the premise that they did it quickly. And so, to begin with, when the doctors reported this, hey, there's something weird happening here, mm-hmm. the Chinese government didn't take action to prevent the spread. They took action to punish the doctors. And Is so that, that just, the story that's coming up today? About well, the, I think it's the last been, couple been, of days. last couple of weeks has yeah. been public. And, and so, you know, just in the last 24 hours, you mm-hmm. had one of those doctors who warned about this new disease. You know, he, he was... He was forced to retract his statement mm-hmm. by an authoritarian government that is and and I think that if you take if you had a, a bunch of people coming down with a, some sort of weird disease um, and dying in weird and strange ways if it, that would be, it would be detected you, much you sooner spoke about, because you wouldn't yeah. have that sort of government censorship mm. so that's why the censorship is evil that's why that censorship is and that's why you know and there's another example of that authoritarian way of life that authoritarian yeah. government is evil mm. It's it's worrying. It's a it's a it's a scary thing. The, uh, the just the idea, I think, of of an outbreak is probably the most. Well, it's literally, it's literally a nightmare scenario. You know, if you're yeah, one of these cruise it, ships that have been quarantined. Oh well, they are living their own horrific. little zombie apocalypse, aren't they? On that, it's, you know, there, is there eleven people or is it forty people? Sorry, have been. There's a bunch of different ships. It's, it's like they're going to be. There's, there's a, literally a nightmare scenario. Yeah, there's going to be movies yeah. about this. And it's, it's horrific. Yeah, it's like God. I know. My heart goes out to these people. You know, yeah, a, it must be you know, Couples on honeymoon, and you know, it's, and and. Did you see so the? Sad. There was a British couple. Like, uh, um, they must be in their sort of late sixties, seventies. I think they were on a uh, a uh, wedding anniversary. And they were they were explaining that was since the ship's been on lockdown, they they'd been on on the ship for x amount of days without any communication with the other passengers until they realised that somebody was setting up a Facebook group between them to speak speak so they could all speak to each other. And yeah, because of course, if you're in quarantine, you can't have them congregating because yeah. you don't want to spread the disease. Yeah. Right? So, but could you imagine that? Just you you wouldn't know whether you you were like the last of two couples. That was they were not sick, you know. You you could be the only couple that isn't sick on the entire ship. Yeah, go. That sounds 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 rough. You know, humans are social creatures, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't. I can't. What, what? You had something else you want to speak about, didn't you? And I can't look at it at the minute. I've forgotten. Oh, there's a whole bunch of different stuff we could. Mm-hmm. Um, we could. Uh, you know, we talk. I guess we've spoken a little bit about identity politics and free speech. Yeah, and, so yeah. on. and I guess maybe the other thing is, you know, this idea of nationalism and empires mm-hmm. in the post-Brexit world. Um, and I think that's, you know, something you've sto- spoken about, you know, in recent weeks. Yeah. Um, it's, I I kind of miss, um, I miss like national pride. There seems to be a lack of like national pride. Oh, come off it. I'm super proud, proud of the Isle no, Man. No, no, no. It comes you. from within. And I, do, I, 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 I think that so many people here on the Isle Man are wonderfully proud yeah, of their nation. Um, 
but I just, I, I, sorry, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm doing the Isle of discredit here because I'm talking about UK, aren't I? Rather than, rather than the island that that we're on. Um, but we seem to be, we seem to be quite ready to break ourselves down now, especially after Brexit. So I think that there's a, there's a, you know, that this, this, you know, I guess from my point of view, is I was obviously born in Australia and an island on the other side of the world, and mm-hmm. you know, migrated over here. You know, and so I guess in that sense, I've, you know, literally bet my life that that the Isle of Man and to a lesser extent these Isles are are a great thing. You know, mm-hmm. I've decided that I'm going to commit. This is where I'm going to build my life. And so in that sense, there's no greater personal endorsement I can give than literally betting my life that yeah. the Isle of Man is the best place in the world. And, you know, I had a choice and I chose the Isle of Man. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I guess on that. But secondly, I think that 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 role as an outsider, of someone who aspires to becoming Manx by choice, yeah. Gives me a um, an, an unusual perspective, because I firmly believe that you know these people are probably the greatest force for good in the history of humanity. You know the Scots who gave us, um, you know that enlightenment of the you know literally the enlight- enlightenment of the of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, which led to the huge outpouring of prosperity, led to you know the greatest nations in the world. Whether you know and you can you can argue about the exact ranking, but the top. Top five are probably some combination of the UK, the Isle of Man, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the US, and you know what other other offshoots are that have have so wholesomely adopted those British institutions and British ideas and British culture. Um, and I guess you know I can, you know, there's the greatest demonstration of that is the way that people move. You know, there's very few people moving from Australia to Indonesia. But there's a lot going the other way. There are very few people who are migrating, you know, from the US to Mexico, but a lot wanting to go the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, there are probably some people who move from the UK to to France, but it's a lot more going the other way. Yeah. And you know, and I I'm very skeptical of what people say, and I'd much rather look at what people do. And you know, I think that you know, if you look at the greatness of our civilization today, you know, people are so much more prosperous on every metric you know our environment is so much cleaner than it was 100 years ago um, our education is so much more wholesome than 100 years ago uh, women have so much more choice and you know they they um, have the you know 100 years ago if you had thought that not just you know women could vote that was you know perhaps controversial in the UK but but you know the idea that you'd have had two you know British prime ministers who were women that would have been thought of as ridiculous, and you know now you've you've had it a couple of times, and it's it's pretty mundane and pretty ordinary, and um, and in that sense, it's it's you know these civilizations give so much opportunity for flourishing. There's no better time to be a painter or an artist today than at any time in the past. Mm-hmm. If you're a you know a sporting you know athlete or a, you know a gardener or whatever, this is the best time to live in the history of humanity. And of course, there's more to be done. But so much of that opportunity and and success was driven by the people of these islands. You know, most not just intellectually, but they did the hard slog in World War One and then World War Two against the and, and then the Cold War. Yeah, uh, of the, those twin evils of communism and Nazism. And and so you know, if you look back at what the people of this the, these islands have given the world, it's you know, it's a wonderful inheritance. And so I guess from that point of view, being a migrant coming from the other side of the world to come to here, I'm so grateful to be, you know, the beneficiary first of that, you know, where I was born, but second of all, to be able to come over here and live amongst it. And so that's that's such a, I'm very fortunate and grateful that the people of these islands have given me a new home. I think that's why the um, the idea of the UK all of a sudden becoming intolerant 
aggravates me so much. Well, it's, it's not the the UK is the most tolerant and welcoming place, certainly in Europe. Yeah, uh, on e- literally every metric, the the UK is much more welcoming of migrants. It's much more welcoming of people of different religions than anywhere else in Europe. Um, and you know, I can, you know, I don't want to say there is no. No racism, which I guess brings us back to the circle of conversation we had at the beginning. I don't there think certain, you, there's racism everywhere, though, in every country. But it's so much less it's, in the UK yeah. um, and in these aisles than it is in most parts of the world. You mm-hmm. know, you literally have a have a have an evilly evilly racist Chinese Communist Party, mm-hmm. um, which is literally subjugating a whole segment of its population, a whole racial segment of its population, and literally in sending its its preferred. You know, racial groups to rape the women in, and so like it's it's not even a standard. You know, like it's not even a comparison. No, um, and and you know, let me let me just be very clear: racism happens, and it is it is wrong and it's terrible. Um, you know, my my cousin leads one of the world's leading museums dedicated to combating and showing racism, um, and. But the you know the sort of racism of of twenty twenty in the UK or in the in the Isle of Man is so incredibly small compared to the racism elsewhere in the world, but also elsewhere in the past. And so you know bad things have happened in the past. So, you know up until the UK or Britain, I guess at the time, led the effort to abolish slavery around the world. You know what a noble thing that the British people gave to the world. What a blessing. Mm-hmm. You know that fight against slavery in the eighteen hundreds, um, and that that. That is so, you know. I guess as as a peoples, you know that's that's beautiful. You know, slavery used to be a part of every 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 um, you know civilization in the world, and and the British people led a global fight, a global war to stop it. Thank God they did. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. What was uh, what was your take on Brexit? I think it'll be. So I guess my first and and. My first point on that is that um, I say to the people in the UK, welcome. You know, the most prosperous places in Europe, which are, to my mind, Norway, Switzerland and and the Isle of Man, mm-hmm. were already outside of the EU. So yeah. I, say, I say to you, you, those of you in the in the in in the UK, welcome. Uh, you know, it's it's been a week now as as we record this on the seventh of February. There's not yet. It's literally well, it's literally what's it, 164 six hours since <laughs> the UK left. There's been no war yet. There's been no civilizational collapse. No. There's food's been no, still on the shelves. Food's still on the shelves. There's no emergency taxes. There's no emergency budget. Um, and and I don't – but I, I guess in the in the short term, this, the, the success or, or not uh, of Brexit as a project will not be defined in the next three, six, nine, twelve 12 months and might not even be defined and determined in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't – if you're moving – from a shitty little apartment to a giant mansion, you don't judge the success of that moving house on how moving day went. You judge it by, well, how's your new living arrangements, you know, once you get bedded in. And I'm, I suspect there'll be some, there is some risk of, of, of difficulty in that process, in that moving process. Mm-hmm. But I think in the long run, you know, I think that the, that the people of the Isle of Man and people of the UK recognise that the future success is not just going to be driven by its relationships with the 27 nations inside the EU, but also the 165 nations outside, outside. the EU. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I think that there will be some disruption and I think that there will be some disruption on the downside. I think there will be some disruption on the upside as well. 
And so fundamentally, I guess it comes down to this principle of, of who do you want to make the laws over you? And, you know, I like the idea of being able to sack the bastards. You know, if the politician has a bad idea, you should be able to sack them at the, at the next election. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think that there was that, that, that idea of democracy existed or was very thriving in the EU because the word democracy comes from two Greek words, one meaning demos, being the community, and one other be crassy, the power. And if you do not have a community, then you all you're left with is the power. Passive. And I think that the EU project will succeed for those people who feel they are part of that European community. And that might well be a success for the people of Germany, France, Benelux, Austria, and maybe Italy. I don't know. But those people who see themselves as European first, because there are other continents that have a shared government, and they are the United States of America, and you have a bunch of different states who each have their regional heritage and their each their little jurisdiction, but they also have a shared community in that, you know, if you're whether you're from New York or California or Texas or North Dakota, you still cheer for the American guy running in the Olympics. Mm. And I think that the European Union will succeed as a political project when the people in those nations cheer for a European representative in the Olympics. And with the UK I could not imagine they would ever cheer for some guy from France in the Olympics. No, because there was still that sense of like homegrown cultural identity. Yeah, because it's a different community. There's no shared community. Yeah. And, the, and the idea that the Greeks and the Germans and the Portuguese and the Italians and the French and the Spanish and the Germans and the, and the Danish and the, and the Swedes share a community, it's, it's, it's creepy and crazy. And I think that a much better way of looking at it would be the relationship between Australia and New Zealand. If you said to an Australian or a New Zealander, hey, why don't we have a shared government? <laughs> People say, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's a, that, that, that idea is completely bonkers. You know, that makes no sense because they don't have a shared community. And if you cannot have a shared government between two nations as similar as Australia and New Zealand, then how the hell are you going to have a shared government between Greece and Austria and Hungary and Poland and Estonia and Sweden and France and Denmark? Like that's that idea is ridiculous on its face. Do you think more countries will fall out now? Of the EU, not with each other. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, th I think that the, that the EU fundamentally has this tension because their antidote, their response to everything is ever closer union. Mm -hmm. And if you're on board with the ever closer union, then I guess go for it. Um, but I don't think that there is a, that the people of Europe will want that. But I guess that's fundamentally for those people. Um, and so I think a great, much better analogy would be you know, that of Canada's relationship with the US and that Canada is a successful, thriving, independent nation and it has a federation immediately to its south of, of states who want to share, have a shared government and, and, you know, the Canadians prosper from the Americans' prosperity and I think that, you know, the analogy is perfectly there for the UK in that our we hope our neighbours in the in Europe will thrive and prosper. Good luck to them. We just don't want to be part of it. Better to be a, better to be a good neighbour than a shitty tenant. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and, uh, and I think that that analogy works even more closely with uh, Australia, New Zealand. You know, you have an island off the coast. You know, you don't want to share a government, uh, and uh, and I think that you know that, that that is the natural state of affairs. Is that is that my I I, uh, I serve here in the Isle of Man as the chairman or the chair of the of the Liberal Vannon Party, mm -hmm. and that that political party has two words in the name, and people often focus on liberal, but there's also the Vannon. And the liberal is this idea that people should have a right to flourish and to prosper as freedom of thought, freedom of religion, and, and those natural human rights that we come and inspect and talk about earlier. But also Vannon, which is about community 
And I think that there is a great great drive in humans to live not just as individual automatons as part of you know machines in some giant cog or empire, but rather as members of a community. And I think that's a natural state of affairs. It's for humans to live in community. And you know, I think of the of the the failure of the of the globalist order over the last two, 20 or thirty years has been forgetting that people are members of communities. And so whether that community is Portuguese or Spanish or Catalan or Scottish or or British or English or Welsh or whatever it is, those communities are important. Uh, and uh, and that, that that fundamentally that is the that the challenge that the European Union needs to overcome needs to convert people into thinking of part of a community it has to be part of an empire. And I don't think they've been very popular in the past. Does it irritate you the um, sort of co-opting of the word liberal now? So different people mean different words to mean different mm. things. Uh, and so when I use liberal, I mean it in the context of uh, of these ideas that have you know really born out of that Scottish Enlightenment mm-hmm. over the last 300 years, that idea of... Um, of human rights, but also the dispersal of power. And so I think that a lot of people speak about um, liberalism as, well, maybe maybe especially neoliberalism in the context of, you know, we are just people in a marketplace. And I believe, obviously, very strongly that we should live in a market economy, but I do not think that we should live in a market society. Yeah. And so those two ideas, I think we need to have... There's a few, like different people mean liberalism to mean different things, especially, you know, that whole enlightenment led out of Glasgow and Edinburgh, you know, 300 years ago. You know, what is that, like a couple of hundred kilometres from here? Um, those ideas were, yes, about the idea of human rights, but they were also about the dispersal of power. Uh, and so I think that liberalism is the opposite of authoritarianism, it's the opposite of centralisation. It is the, about empowering individuals to lead their own lives, but also families and, and communities to lead their own lives. And so in that sense, um, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, how different people mean the word, you know, there's a lot of different strains of liberalism in, mm-hmm. in 2020. There's classical liberalism, there's progressive liberalism, there is neoliberalism, there's a whole bunch of different different strains. And so when I talk about it, I mean it in the context of we should have respect for the equality of everyone's human dignity um, and we should also, you know, try and push down those powers, those decisions to be as, as much as possible to be, you know, made at local decisions. So, you know, obviously some, not, not all decisions are able to be made at a local level. So you can't have a national defence at a local level. The, the mechanics of that just simply don't work, right? Um, and, uh, We're going to just have, like, little tiny armies. <laughs> that might have worked a couple of hundred years ago, <laughs> especially in the context of where you had militia and so on. Yeah. But it probably does not work in the context of tanks and, no. and nuclear bombs. But then again... You know, look in the at the wars of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. You have seen a such a one uh, not such a not, I don't know what the right word is, but such a strong uprising by these little militia mm-hmm. against what was or what is the world's most powerful military power. Yeah, it's a, so you know, and so I don't know what I don't know what the answer, is, but yeah, certainly I mm-hmm. you know there are some national issues that are should be decided at a national level. Um, but you know, fundamentally, if you know, the, a lot, I think a lot of these decisions should be made at a local level. And one of the things that's, I guess, coming here thinking about these ideas, you know, growing up in Australia, it's a very obvious where the borders of Australia should be, right? There's, there's never, no one has ever, well, that's a big event, because there was for some time Australia did 
operate a colony in Papua New Guinea until 1975. But it was never really part of Australia and it was very distinct and, and it was very obvious that at some stage it was going to become an independent. Whereas, and so I guess the same thing with the, the UK and, the, and, the, and you know, obviously the Isle of Man, no one has any doubt over where the borders of the Isle of Man should be. And so maybe that's a happy coincidence that those Anglosphere countries that we talked about you know, before, whether it be the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the US, none of those countries have any dispute over where their borders should be. Mm. Whereas maybe there is, and I think one of the challenges of, of borders in Europe, where you do not have it's at the edges quite such defined borders of communities, um, that it might be a little bit different. So, you know, the Catalans of northeastern Spain are also part of the Catalans of southwestern France. And so I guess that's a challenge that, that the world will have to confront. But, you know, I think that idea of, of, of liberal nationalism as opposed to liberal globalism is, is, is an important difference. Um, so would you consider yourself a classical liberal? On some issues. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm also a little bit more, much more nationalist mm-hmm. than that. In that. I think that the right and proper... Well, the biggest, what it seems to me is that the biggest communities that humans seem to be able to live within are nations. In that, you know, whenever people have tried to create empires, they have, whenever people get a choice, they break out of them. They've tumbled. Right? Whereas nations seem to be able to withstand that. And when you have borders around nations, you know, in the case of island nations like, like Australia and New Zealand and, you know, continental nations like Canada and the US, where there is no real question about their borders, um, there is... I think that's important as well. Um, Where do you stand on immigration when it comes to um, nations and where, where the the tipping point is? I mean, because this is obviously a, uh, a different thing coming from you because, you, you know, you have emigrated. So, you know, it's, but you're, um, I think you're, do, you're doing the, the thing people kind of want when people move is you're emigrating and integrating yeah, and so I think that one of the most important things is that a purpose, a government, a, a country should there should be two principles for a migration policy. One is it does it better the nation and the people of the nation, mm-hmm. and then I think there's scope for some degree of humanitarian. Um, I don't know what the road. No, I'm good. Um, one some kind of scope for humanitarian program for people in desperate need of refuge, and. And so, you know, if I think of one of the mistakes of the British migration program, hopefully until now, is that it has been driven less by what the interests of the country are and more by the interests of the migrants themselves. Mm. In that the Isle of Man should have a migration policy that's good for the Isle of Man. Hopefully it also has ancillary benefits for the migrants. Just yeah, there, yeah. Right? No one will come here otherwise, yes, we're, right? We're not bringing slavery back. <laughs> correct, We've already correct. talked well, about that. <laughs> slavery is a horrific idea. That's, 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 and, you know, and, so, and so the migration policy of the UK should be what's best for the UK. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, for France or South Africa or Italy or whatever, every country should have a migration policy that's right for itself. And as someone who is very fortunate to have a unique and rare skill... You know, when I came over here to the Isle of Man in 2011, <laughs> the number of people who could who could lead a team dedicated to cheating, to, to, to combating cheating mm-hmm. in online poker, and, you know, it's very small. <laughs> I mean, so it's a good job you put combating in there. <laughs> yeah, of course, right? And so, and so that's a that's a very niche skill. And so, and so the 
you know, if we need doctors in the Isle of Man or the UK or wherever, we should welcome doctors. If we need accountants, mm-hmm. we should welcome accountants. And so, and so, you know, in the community I live in here in Douglas in the Isle of Man, um, I'm so fortunate that I've been able to take advantage of it. It's been very good for me. But, you know, going forward, I think that the migration policy for the Isle of Man should be about what's good best for the Isle of Man. And I am very skeptic. So I, I think that I'm, I'm very, let me let me say that sentence again. I'm very skeptical of of open borders, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, I had a debate here in the Isle of Man back in 2018 against the Chamber of Commerce, who were putting forward this idea of re- removing all all migration restrictions, um, because I think that that it's important to to first of all have the infrastructure. For migrants, but second of all, to remember what the purpose is, which is what's good for the people of the Isle of Man. And I don't, I think that there is a use here in the Isle of Man for more doctors. You know, one of the local doctor surgeries closing down because they can't get enough doctors, and that's terrific. Mm-hmm. And we should welcome more doctors because we need them. Yeah, you know, we need more you know professionals who are able to provide those skills and those experiences. And especially if we get them at a bargain, we didn't have to pay for their education. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's, it's like a freebie. Um, but on the other end, um, I don't think it makes sense to to further inflate the lower-skilled labour market because I think that the price of labour um, is driven by a function of supply and demand. And if you import a large number of lowly-skilled people, then that will deflate the cost of, of labour and, well, and put downward pressure on Manx people's wages. And I think that's a bad idea. Being a tradesman, that's always something I bring up with people when it comes to, to Brexit is... Um, you can go to any major city. I mean, we don't really have this on the Isle of Man so much, but you can go to any major city in the UK and you will find places with people waiting to be picked up in a white van to go and labour for people. Mm -hmm. And all that's doing is dragging the prices down that that qualified, skilled craftsman can do. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that if you're a... You know, a rich lawyer, a rich accountant, it's probably great, great for you to have a large number of cheap labour because they're the people who are making your coffee at six yep. a.m. in the morning. You know, they're the people who are you know, you know, stacking the supermarket shelves for you. Um, but I think that that you know, and, and also just in this context, just want to be very clear, I'm mm-hmm. not suggesting that we should kick anyone out. No, no, no. And the people who have chosen to make their homes here and they've mm-hmm. chosen to make their lives here, you know, they've bet their lives yeah. on the old man. You know, and I think that's great and that's wonderful. We should welcome them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in in terms of, you know, my work is is focused uh, in an online app that is about connecting workers with jobs, in uh, in England, and and in that sense, it's um, you know you can see very clearly that if you supply more of anything, the price goes down. Yes, yeah. this is literally primary school, I don't know primary school, but you know, school school level economics. But if you want to make apples cheaper, you provide a lot of it. Um, and I think that, that any migration policy needs to be very carefully managed to ensure it's in the interest of the nation. Do you think? Um, do you think there's a chance of it getting managed better? I didn't hear what you said. Sorry. Do you think there's a chance of it being being managed better in the UK? Do you oh, think, absolutely, because yeah. currently it's unmanaged, and so you have this ridiculous process whereby people, up until now, if they are from within the EU, they are unrestricted migration, people mm-hmm. from outside the EU, it's a, it's a tough thing. So to the point where um, I, when I first came over here working in online poker, um, I'd worked for the company for six and a bit years and 
Um, I initially came over on my Australian passport with an Australian visa uh, on the basis of my employment. And after being here for six years, that employment concluded. I left the company. Very, you know, I you know, it was a finished that in back in twenty sixteen, and 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 so two days after I left the company, I received a letter from the immigration department saying I have sixty days to leave the country. Wow, as an Australian citizen living here for six years, no right of of abode. And then I was able to, to to obtain documentation to prove that I was also German. And so weeks later, I get indefinite leave to remain, so I can stay here for as long as I want now. And so the idea that Australian Josem, 60 days to leave the country, German Josem, stay here forever. That <laughs> is completely bonkers. That makes no sense whatsoever. Literally the same human being. It's a good job we didn't apart. just want half of you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know you get a German half. But like, but like that is that is that is completely bananas. People should be judged on the content of the character mm-hmm. and the capability to contribute to the country, yeah. not on the nationality. And so if you are, you know, European or you're Asian or you're African um, or American or Australian or wherever you're from, you should be judged on your content of your character and your capability to contribute to the nation. And And I think that hopefully the UK will move towards that that idea. Um, I hope that that will flow through here in the Isle of Man in some way. Um, because I think that, you know, this again comes back to this idea of identity policy. You should not be determined by your nationality or your race or your colour or your religion or whatever. You should be judged on who you are as a human being. Um, I've, I've always felt, felt that we dodged a bullet with Jeremy Corbyn with the open borders policy. Oh, it's, a, it's a bad idea. Yeah, the... It it just seems I'm I'm not the greatest person when it comes to economics, but it seems to me that if you have an open border policy with countries, all it means is is that you're going to get an influx of people, which will essentially destroy the economy of that place, and then move on to the next place. So I I don't know about I don't I don't I don't know what those impacts would be, mm-hmm. um, and you know I'm sure that some people welcome uh, you know a, a, a bunch of a large number of of, of migrants. I'm sure it'd be good for some businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know fundamentally, I don't really care what the businesses or corporations think. I care what's good for the people of yeah. the country. And you know, I think that you know here we should be concerned with that. Um, and you know, if it's good for the people of the Isle of Man or good for the United Kingdom, then the Isle of Man or the United Kingdom should do that. Um, and that should always be the test. What's in the national interest? In that there is, I believe that there is no higher power than the people of your nation. And so they're the people who should be in charge, and and the and and the metric of 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 the of how you should judge policy should be, you know, does it help the people of the Isle of Man to flourish and prosper, or does it help the you know the American people to flourish and prosper, or the Brazilian people? And so that's why I, you know, am a very big supporter of nationalism. Is this idea that you should do things that are better, that improve the lives of your nation, and and the things that will improve the lives of the people of the Isle of Man might well be different to the things that improve the lives of the people of Denmark or of Germany or of Russia or whatever. Um, and so that idea of living within those you know, those fairly and reasonably defined borders is important. And I think that's, you know, an increasingly popular idea that, you know, the people of the Isle of Man should decide what's good for the people of the Isle of Man. I've seen um, you online you've been talking about uh, the idea of having like a, a Manx president type situation. So some people have proposed that. Yeah. 
they used the more euphemistic phrase of a directly elected chief minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I guess that they would, I don't know if they've thought through the constitutional consequences or implications of that, um, it would be very difficult to square that with our Westminster-inspired system of government. Um, how, would, how would you feel about that? Do you think it's a good idea? No. No. You know, I, th- I think that Tinwald, you know, is the world's longest continually operating parliament. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful heritage for the Isle of Man to have. Um, and... And the consequence of having, you know, this sort of presidential system will be to massively reduce its powers. Um, it would reduce the democratic accountability um, that we have. Uh, and well, do you think we'd re- reduce it? Because I, I'd have thought with a figurehead there would be more accountability than. Well, if you have an elected president, then they're going to be president for the full term of their government, even mm-hmm. if they do something that is wildly unpopular and wildly undemocratic. Whereas yeah. You know the strength of the British or the Australian or the you know really the British system that Westminster inspired system is the government can lose the confidence of the Parliament and the job parliamentarian's job as a member of the House of Keys or a member of House of Commons or whatever is to hold that government to account and to ensure that they act in the interests of the public yeah. and if they lose the confidence of the Parliament then they should be sacked as happened in the last term over in the UK yeah um, and as has happened in Australia from time to time and has happened in elsewhere if you're and so that's why, you know, the alternative of this, what, and I, and I, I really don't like this bullshit of calling it a directly elected chief minister, because what it really is is a president. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so, if you want to introduce a presidential system, then, then, and, you know, I, I cannot, for the life of me, believe that anyone in twenty twenty is saying that the U.S. or France is a model for good governance. No. no <laughs> like, no. like, like, really. Yeah, you know, and 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 you know, I have I have a lot of respect for a lot of people who feel passionately about these ideas, um, but I think they've just not followed f- followed through the logical consequence of their argument. Because if you're going to have a president for five years, um, then you essentially have an elected, elected, not dictator, but an elected president who will be in office for that full term. I liked uh, Joe Rogan's joke about that. He said every five years, the America has a popularity contest to see who's going to be the most powerful person in the world. <laughs> well, you know, to a certain extent, the last last time around, it was an unpopularity yeah. contest. You know, you know the most uh, unpopular candidate uh, in 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 history ever nominated for president ran against the second most unpopular candidate in uh, in American history. So, Jesus, I, I do um, think if if you've been a career politician like Hillary Clinton has been, uh, and you lose against the reality TV show billionaire. That must sting. <laughs> I'm sure. But like and it's remarkable that that Hillary Clinton has substantially remodeled American society just by being so wildly unpopular. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense of she ran in two thousand and eight and lost to Barack Obama, mm-hmm. which reshaped America to have this Obamian set of ideas and leadership for eight years. Then she ran in 2016 and and Bernie Sanders, this 70-something-year-old socialist from Vermont who's not even a member of the party. I do think that it's crazy the age of most uh, yeah, yeah, like these people. You know, this, this, this fossil from another another. another you know these these baby booners, they just won't give up. <laughs> they just keep coming and coming and coming. You know, and and so yeah, but he's this, a cool boomer, so it's okay. He doesn't get any of the flack. Well, I don't know, but like, look, he was he almost beat her, mm-hmm. 
And as a consequence of that, the Democratic Party think the answer is socialism. Yeah. And and so again, so that's the second institution that she's reshaped by being wildly unpopular. That the Democratic Party, I think, mistakenly believed that the future is socialism when it's not. And then she managed to lose to Donald Trump, who's then now reshaped the third institution. And yeah. this is a, you know, she's ran run for president, you know, repeatedly, lost repeatedly, and every time she either gets beaten by or narrowly beats, you know, these these people who've reshaped the institution. And so I think one of the, you know, if there's one lesson from American politics of the last 10 years, it's, it's Hillary Clinton is wildly unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, everyone who, who runs against her either wins or just narrowly loses by such a small margin that they think that they have the, the answers. Do you think it'll be Biden that gets the nomination? I think it's now unlikely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think his collapse. You know, I've, I'm 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 very reluctant to to foreshadow what the voters of yeah, you know of Philadelphia so how they're going to vote or or how the people mm-hmm. of you know Manchester in, in New Hampshire are going to vote. Um, and you know, I guess it depends who turns up and casts a ballot. And so I'm very reluctant. And so my guide for this sort of stuff is the betting market. Yeah. And right now the favourites are some combination of uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. um, Pete Buttigieg. The name I've never said out loud, so hopefully I did it right. And then Michael Bloomberg. So I guess those are the three most likely. Um, you know, it's what a what a carnage. And I, I like I, it just staggers me that that here we are in 2020, and with you know these baby boomers are just they keep on coming and coming and coming. You've got you know Joe Biden coming, you've got Joe, uh, Bernie Sanders coming, you've got Donald Trump. C- come on, get over it. What about what about the yeah. next generation? And uh, the, I mean, the crazy thing is, is Donald Trump's the sprightly one of the lot as well. well I, don't know, I, I don't know about that, but the, like you know, these these you know. Bernie Sanders doesn't look like he'd see a term out if he was there. Well, he had a heart attack like, yeah, last year. So, yeah. So. Um, you know. Joe Biden, he appears to have onset dementia of some sort. Well, I don't know about that. I'm so, I'm reluctant to to make psychiatric uh, diagnoses. In my people. professional opinion, as a painter and decorator and part time podcaster, <laughs> well, God, yeah. Yeah. Um, stick to painting and decorating. Yeah. Like, you know, like 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 these 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 just old old men. Mm. You know, it's 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 you, it's hilariously sad. Do you think it's that's a society thing for America? Because th- there is, uh, I think me and Stuart, you might have heard it on the podcast, we talked about this the other week, where um, I thought it might be because they kind of respect el- uh, elders more. Well, I, that's a, that's, that sounds difficult to... Like what you, I don't. I don't think Donald Trump was elected because he was respected. I don't. No, I don't no, think but, Bernie, but yeah. the, just the, the fact that the leaders always tend to be older people. I think it's just this current crop. You know, yeah. the baby boomers are the generation that just will never die. You know, mm-hmm. they, they they are just, you know, it's, it's, it's time to move on, right? Uh, they ate well when they were young and they were taking full advantage of medical care. Well, like I, I guess, you know, what was it? They had George H.W. Bush served World War Two, so he was not a baby boomer. But what, what do you got? For 1992 mm-hmm. to 2000, and, you know, unless Peter Buttigieg wins, to 2024, what is that? How old is he? He's, I don't know, 40-something? Well, yeah. You know, um, so so that will be, you know, if, assuming you know it's not Pete, Pete, then that will be from 1992 through to 2024. That is a 32 pe- year period that is dominated by people born within what five or ten years. It's crazy. It's um, you know, where are the, where are the people born in the 60s and 70s? Um, you know, or even the 80s now. I don't know. I mean. They they must be there somewhere. I mean, you've got the 
who's the she's thirsty, isn't she? Otazio Cortez. Yeah, I think she's a little bit too young, but you know, yeah, and yeah. it's you know, Paul Ryan might have been on the Republican mm-hmm. side, but you know, there's there's you know, there's these people it's from Tulsi the Tulsi Gabbard. Is Tulsi Gabbard in fifties? I don't or know. late forties, I think. I don't know. I quite like Tulsi Gabbard. She comes she comes across well. I think she comes across quite centered as well. America doesn't really like center. Yeah, so look, I guess you just have these people from the 1950s who are just keep on 40s and 50s who just keep going and going and going and going. That's <laughs> bizarre. You know, there's, I think there's value in generational change. Yeah, in uh, not not just for the sake of that, but also that that I think that you know to be a leader of a nation, you have some degree of dynamism. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe medical attention these days is more. It's stronger and better, and so on. Well, the royal family won't die; they'll be keep on coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The uh, the pr- Prince Philip was in the, in that car. The picture of him. Do you see that? I I've seen him, a picture of him in no, a car. I don't know. If the, the re- the, there was a recent one where he he looked terrible, and you just thought, oh, but this is it. He's gone, yeah. and it's clearly not. Clearly, yeah. whatever whatever they're doing, whatever serums are going on in it's that medical place. medical progress, I guess, and. Uh, you know, I, you know, there's a degree of sympathy for Prince Charles. This has got to be the world's longest job interview. Uh, well, it's, he's essentially going to become um, king and then go, there you go, I should really step down. I mean, well, why would you not think he? he like, let's say he pass, he becomes king when he's 70 and his mother's 100 and passes away. You know, touch wood. He's still hope she 20 doesn't. years. <laughs> like, like that's, that's still going to be 20 or 30 years of him as, yeah. as the king, right? You know, and, that, and that's, you know, it's remarkable, but jeez. Do you, do you like the royal family? Um, I haven't had dinner with any of them. No, no, but like, I mean, not I'm personally. Sure nice people, but, like... but the, the idea <laughs> of a monarchy, do you like it? It's difficult for me to justify mm-hmm. in the sense of I think that people should be chosen for their job based upon merit. Yeah. But then again, you know, I don't want to, you don't want to break something that's working fine. No, I think working is what I'd have the question about there. I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, you talk about, uh, People coming into the country and what they give back. I'm not sure what the monarchy, what the value is. So, so the ultimate value of the monarchy mm-hmm. is that that provides a tiebreaker when the normal political processes break down. Mm-hmm. So, in 1975 in Australia, the normal political processes broke down, and the government was unable to pass a budget through the parliament. Therefore, it could spend no money. Therefore, the government was about to collapse and end. So at that time, the Governor-General as a Queen's representative in Australia stepped in, dismissed the then Prime Minister, who had a majority in the House of Representatives, the House of Commons equivalent, and was able to serve as that tiebreaker, that that fuse breaker, um, for that political system that broke down. There was immediately public elections were held, and the whole system was then able to get going again. And so that's the that's the perp that's the ultimate no, that, political that's really purpose of the monarchy. Because right? you you always th- think, always, I would always think of the monarchy as not actually having any power as such, as and more of a figurehead. It'd be very difficult. It'd be much more unlikely to happen in the British equivalent. But you could imagine it's, it, it would be theoretically possible mm-hmm. if no one could form a majority in the House of Commons, or if no one could get the budget through the House of Commons, the national budget each year, then. And the parliament did not resign and end itself, you know, as almost we had this problem like at the end of last year. If we'd had another hung parliament, for instance. Well, if the... you'd had a hung parliament that could not govern, mm. 
and you had the leader. Uh, no, no one was able to form a majority. Yeah. And you could imagine some hypothetical process where that happens with some sort of splinter or small party mm-hmm. voting against both sides. Then, excuse me, that would be the appropriate time for the monarchy. And that, that, I guess, is the political value of the monarchy. Uh, for a previous job, I did some analysis on the economic impact of the monarchy, uh, and and our analysis suggested it was probably positive uh, in terms of the tourism and the attractions and all so on, mm-hmm. all that sort of business. Um, but I, and so I guess is that positive against how much it costs? Though? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and so, and so people buy a lot of royal plates. china and plates and tea towels <laughs> and so on it's all, it's all of that. It, it, it staggered me how much <laughs> that sort of stuff was was and you know tourists as a result and you know there's something like a nine percent increase in tourists when uh prince uh, william got married all right coming, okay. yeah, it's like, oh, like don't quote me on that exact number but that no, order no, makes you but... right yeah and so that was a few years ago now but uh, but certainly i think there's a probably some sort of value or return on investment but you know i guess the value of the monarchy is hey it's there as a backup if your normal political processes yeah. don't work and you know, I guess and we probably have, I think the British people have faith that the, you know, the monarchy in its current form will probably act as that safety valve if the normal political processes break down. So, so in that context, that's the purpose. And so would I want to break that? Well, I'd be bloody nervous. Mm. You know, in that sense, it's, you know, and I guess here in the, in, Australia, in the Australian context or the Manx context or in the Canadian context, having that sort of trusted independent umpire who could who can blow that whistle makes sense but you know then again you have the compl- the additional complexity of it's being you know accountable to a foreign person right you know and, you know and so one of the things that i i think would be good for the isle of man is if you started having manx people serve as the lieutenant governor rather than you know the people chosen you know to represent the queen yeah it's a that's interesting i've never i'd never thought about the uh, monarchy having power um, yeah, so these are all very reserved and, powers, no, no, the theoretical e- and so on. But even the um, the idea of people arranging holidays because of of, of the monarchy, I, yeah. I imagine people going to Disneyland. I don't imagine people coming to London <laughs> to go to Buckingham Palace. Well, people do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, when I first came over, I, I in fact, <laughs> funny story actually, it was a couple of years, sometime after I first moved over, I went over there and there's this, there's this. Um, what do we call it? This um, there's this horse out there, the the horse St James Horse Guard Parade and so mm-hmm. on, and uh, and I was going onwards and I was carrying, I I flew into from the Isle of Man to Melbourne to to London on the the Friday morning, and then that Friday night I was flying on with some friends. We're going to Italy. Um, it was a, a a group trip. It was all good fun. And so anyway, I had the day to myself. And so I thought I'd go see all the tur- typical tourist sites. I go see the St James Horse Guard Parade. I'm carrying my both my bag, quite a large bag, because I'm going away for the weekend, but also taking photos as a tourist does. And 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 a number of their anti-terrorism police saw a heavily bearded man carrying a very large, and they thought I was doing reconnaissance for some sort of terrorist attack. And and I do, and I remember I walked down the street and once I was, and I remember they pulled me aside in a in a place that I realised has was covered in three directions from with concrete uh, barriers, you know at least waist height. Yeah. Uh, and then there were two heavily armed police officers who came up to me and two other police and then there was another police officer heavily armed with a you know some sort of. I don't know whether it's a, some sort of automatic weapon or semi-automatic, but mm-hmm. like a, not, not a pistol. It's I like, like a, some sort of rifle <laughs> of some sort. 
20 metres back. Well, I guess in hindsight, it was probably there to lay down covering fire. If yeah, yeah. Uh, and so there I was as a tourist. And uh, and they said, oh, you know, why are you taking photos? So, I'm, like, I'm, I'm here to take photos of tourists. So can we see some ID? And I distinctly remember saying, look, my, my, my driver's licence and my passport is inside my inside jacket pocket. Can I reach inside to get it? Yeah. Because this was, this was like maybe a couple of years ago after it's the British police had good mistakenly shoot, yeah. shoot some. And, and they said, yeah, go ahead. And, and I did. And, and, and I think that once they heard my accent, because I think my accent's probably mellowed a bit over the years, so it's probably still pretty harsh then. Mm-hmm. I suspect that when they first heard my accent, it probably reduced... <laughs> their fear and and I remember I laughed at at some stage when once I realized that they were not going to shoot me <laughs> and you know perhaps a bit of a nervous laugh you know because you know, it's it's a confronting situation to have all these these things and you know for me as a little boy from suburban Melbourne and outback Australia I'd never really you know seen anything like this before um and uh, and they said oh you shouldn't be laughing and I said well of course I should you guys made a mistake and uh, and 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 it was sort of Sort of funny but scary, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so and so, yes, there are some tourists like me and who, who go to take photos of those sort of things. And you know, it was a few years ago now, but uh, um, and uh, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. So that, that was when I first went to go see Buckingham Palace. <laughs> I was suspected. <laughs> have you, have of you been uh, back since? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so my first visit to Buckingham Palace, I thought I was a you know terrorist or a reconnaissance. <laughs> and of course, I wasn't, but it was uh, it was. Um, I guess since then I've trimmed my beard, so I've not had another problem. I was in <laughs> I was in London shortly after um, the I come yeah it would have been nine eleven shortly after shortly after nine eleven, and uh, I I remember thinking to myself I can't believe something's happened and it's essentially turned me into a holiday racist. <laughs> yeah, what's well, an important reminder? You should judge people by who they are, yeah, individuals, yeah. not on the basis of their demographics. Every every landmark I went to. I was thinking, this is lots of people here. Yeah, but look, you know, fortunately, there have been, well, there have been some, not fortunately, there have been, but, you know, there have been a number of yeah. going, yeah. but none of the mass casualty in the hundreds or thousands. No, been, no. And it's, you know, every single one of, you know, it's, it's, it's so sad to think that these people with those primitive medieval ideologies wanting to kill modernity, mm-hmm. you know, they, they are the enemies of, Society, and it's uh, you know whether it be the, the horrific bombings in Manchester. It's, you know, imagine targeting a bunch of little girls who are going to see an Ariadne. Uh, it it, it, it doesn't bear thinking of. Yeah, it's and, it's. And then, then I have such. What such, does that prove to anybody? I can I can understand doing it to like when you were outside Buckingham Palace for sort of instance. No, no, or, I can't. I can't even understand no, that. Like, what the, what an evil thing! And like, you know, I, these no, the, but I can get what the I I can get the point is, or not the point. I can get the the impact that it's going to cause. I should say, but the just shooting a load of people to watch that going to watch put a pop star that yeah, well, was a bomb. And that, you know, it's you know, Sorry, and yeah. they're you know people from the old man who are and it's. What a, and, and I, my heart goes out to those people who are affected to this day as a mm-hmm. result of this. And it's, it's tra- like they're the people we should be thinking of, the victims, and they're the ones that matter here. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, on that bombshell. I know, yeah. Um, leave, we might as well leave people on a happy note with that, I think. Oh, God. <laughs> but, right, thank you for coming in tonight. You have been the first Australian, first guest host I've had in. And um, the uh, the first 
guest within IMDb page. Oh, well, thank you very much, Lee. It's been a pleasure chatting to you guys. Yeah, uh, guys. Well, you. Well, I'm jumping <laughs> at least beers here in front of me, but uh, no, no, it's uh, Lee. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for no, having me, and thanks. I'll keep listening. Uh, and, Cheers, uh, mate. All the best. Bye bye.